The final scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hey everyone, Merry Christmas. Uh, it is hard to believe that there are only two weeks left of what has been a pretty difficult and trying year. Whenever someone asks me how I'm personally doing, I usually tell them that I feel like Rocky Balboa, uh, but not Rocky in Rocky 1, 2, or 3. I feel like Rocky in Rocky 4, uh, where he's aged and probably too old to be fighting, and he's like in the 8th or ninth round, ready to be knocked out because of how weary and tired he is. And I think collectively speaking, that's sort of how we all feel right now. We, we are tired and weary. And uh, so I think what we could all use a little bit more of in our lives is some hope and some good news, uh, which is why, uh, like many of you, I was watching with a lot of excitement and anticipation uh, with the first people in our city, country, and world getting vaccinated. Uh, because in many ways, this tiny little vaccine, it, it represents our hope. Uh, it's, it's our savior to, to save us from the misery that we've been experiencing because of this pandemic. And you know what, similarly, Christmas, it's all about hope. It's all about a savior, but not in this vaccine, but in another vaccine, and that is in the person of Jesus, who is our greater hope. Because unlike this vaccine, which can save us from COVID-19 and can save us from an expedited death, the truth of the matter is it cannot save us ultimately from death. We're really, eventually we're all going to die. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But what Jesus offers and the reason why he is the greater vaccine is that he, he not only buys us some more time on earth, but what Jesus offers us is not just more time, but what he offers us is eternal life. And that's why he came. That's, that's what Christmas is all about. Because the reason why we die is not because of COVID-19. The reason why we die is ultimately because of the curse of sin, a different kind of virus, a, a, an even more powerful virus. And that's why Jesus came to reverse this curse, which is what you saw in the video, which is what we're about to read right now in verse 15, where it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, in every other religion, you have to go up to God. And so whether it's through meditation and fasting or prayer or helping out with a charity, through your moral performance and meritorious good deeds, you sort of have to go up to God. But in Christianity, God is the one that came down to us. He's the one that pursued a relationship with us and initiated that relationship with us by coming into our world. And the reason why he did that is ultimately to save us from our sin. Now, I realize that the word sin and sinner are sort of um, taboo words or words that are not even really used in our everyday vernacular. And so let me, let me help capture our imaginations for a moment uh, to help us understand this foreign concept. Uh, some of you might know this story, but uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, my first love was not God. My first love was basketball. And I remember playing basketball with two of my friends on one side of the court, you know, as we're shooting around and having a good time. 
along comes Mike. And he starts shooting on the other side of the court by himself. And in almost every grade and in almost every class, there's a Mike that is sort of socially ostracized and demonized. And for whatever reason, he didn't smell the best in the world. And because we were cruel kids, you know, we, we would make fun of him. And, you know, he was sort of shunned, you know, in our class. And so as we're shooting around, one of my, one of my friends says, yo, Mike, come over here. And so Mike turns around and uh, with whatever courage he has, he sheepishly makes his way towards us. And uh, my friend says, yo, Mike, take off your shoe. And he says, you know, why? And um, so my friend says, just take it off. And seeing that there are three of us and just one of him and that he's severely outnumbered, he, he actually takes off his shoe. And so my friend responds by saying, now lick the bottom of it. And you could just see the, the tears um, uh, swelling up in his eyes. And he actually does lick, he licks the bottom of his shoes. But the problem was because he acquiesced to our desire so easily, it didn't really satisfy us. And uh, so my friend says, and this is the G-rated version of the story. My friend says, uh, now lick it again, but this time do it slowly and he actually licks the bottom of his shoe very slowly and he starts crying and he runs home meanwhile we're cracking up laughing but it was at that moment at the age of 11 even while i was laughing to sort of fit in and not be ostracized with my 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 crew i realized that there was something severely severely wrong with me um, and in christianity we would say that it's this, this sinful nature that is a part of who we are, human nature. For those of you who are familiar with um, philosophy, you might, you might know of the 18th century uh, Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And one of the things that Rousseau really helped popularize was this idea that human beings are inherently good. So we're born with this clean slate. And it's not our nature that's corrupted so much as nurture that corrupts us. And so the way to experience salvation from society is to sort of remove ourselves from society. And uh, this is sort of the, the common ideology that we have today uh, in, our, in our modern secular world. And I think the only problem with that is that it's not just nurture that's the problem. There's something about our nature. Uh, to err is human, to err is sin. And, and there's something about our nature, who we are, that is fundamentally corrupted. And so if you've ever read classic books like Lord of the Flies, which really captures this, or uh, seen the movie The Village, uh, this, this movie also captures this idea because in the movie The Village, there are a group of people that are sort of disgusted with the evils of society. And so what they do is that, much like Rousseau, they remove themselves from society to avoid the evils of society. So they sort of move deep into the woods and create this village, this, this sort of utopian world or utopian bubble that is separated from this, the, the evils of a dystopian world. And what's so ironic about uh, this story is that what ends up happening is that it turns out that the evils of this society are no, not, not only out there, but they, they are just as heavily present in the village as well. 
And so the point of the movie is that it's, it's not just nurture, but there's something fundamentally wrong with our nature that really, really corrupts us. This is why the theologian R.C. Sproul once said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Let me say that one more, get, one more time because it's sort of a tongue twister. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's something fundamentally wrong with our nature and the core of who we are. And this is sort of the first domino that really needs to drop if we're going to understand what Christianity is all about. Because you cannot understand the good news of Christianity without first understanding the bad news first, which is our sinful nature. And you know what's really interesting is that when you uh, finally do become a Christian and, and, and the first domino drops and you enter into you know, this relationship with Jesus, one of the things that's so paradoxical about entering into a relationship is this. The more you become like Jesus, the less you will feel like Jesus. Uh, I, I know what that feels like. I know many of you know what that feels like. And, and probably the Apostle Paul understood this better than anyone else. When he's writing this letter uh, called 1 Timothy to his, his protege, Timothy, this letter, contextually speaking, is written towards the end of Paul's life. Eight years prior to penning this letter, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, which was one of his first letters. I think it was like the third or fourth letter that he wrote. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul writes this, For I am the least of the apostles. And so what Paul is doing here in one of the first letters that he, he ever writes shortly after his conversion is that he, he's comparing himself to his colleagues. He, he's, he's comparing himself to Peter and to Matthew, the tax collector. He's comparing himself to Doubting Thomas. And he's saying, you know what, compared to my colleagues, the, the other apostles, I'm the worst. I am at the bottom of the totem pole. I am the least of all the apostles. So this is written early on in Paul's life. About six years later, he writes a letter to the Ephesians, and this is what Paul writes in Ephesians 3.8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Now Paul is saying, a little bit later on in his life as he matures, he's saying he's not only the least of the apostles, he's saying, I'm the least of all God's people. I'm the least of all Christians. If for those of you who have any Christian friends, I'm like at the bottom of the, of the list as far as morality goes. I'm the worst of all the Christians you have ever met. And you know what? A couple years after he writes the letter to the Ephesians, he writes this letter to Timothy towards the end of his life. And this is what he writes again, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now Paul is comparing himself not to the apostles, not to Christians, but to everyone in the world, to all sinners in the world. You know what? To everyone in the world, compared to everyone in the world, I am the worst. And so we see this progressive understanding that Paul has, this sort of revelation as Paul matures more and more in his faith, that the more he becomes like Jesus, the less he actually feels like Jesus himself. Martin Luther once said this, If the sins known to my heart were published to the world, I would deserve the gallows. To be sure, the world now respects me. But if it really knew me, 
it would spit on me, for I would deserve beheading. So the reason why I'm sharing this is because, uh, let's say you went to the doctor uh, to get a checkup and, and the doctor comes back with some really, really bad news and he says, listen, uh, you, you have stage one cancer and uh, you're not in good shape right now and it's gonna progressively get worse. And so you say to the doctor, but I, but I feel fine. Uh, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. And you're almost in denial of the fact that you're, you're sick. And so the doctor says, no, you're, you're in bad shape. So here's some medication and it will help you and heal you completely of, of, of your cancer. And so you, you end up taking the medication, but all throughout the process, you don't really feel like you're that sick or there's anything wrong with you. And you're almost in denial. Now, if that's, that's your mentality and posture, your, your value for the medicine uh, and your appreciation for the medication, it's gonna be severely diminished. Why? Because you don't think you're that sick. And similarly, what I would say is that if you have a very diminished view of your sin and you're almost in denial of it, you're, you're not that bad, I'm a good person, then your value of Jesus, who Jesus is, is gonna be diminished. If your view of sin is small, your view of Jesus will be small. But if your view of sin is big, like I am the worst out of everyone I know, like if you really understood my thoughts, like what Luther is saying, you would not be my friend. If you really had that mentality, if you had a big view of your sin, you will simultaneously have a big view of who Jesus is as our savior. And the reason why I think we should have a big view of our sin is because again, what this verse says is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know what's really interesting is that when you read the Bible, whenever something clean touches something that is unclean, that clean thing becomes unclean. So if you were to eat pork or shellfish or touch something that's contaminated or even dead, that clean thing now becomes contaminated, impure, um, uh, no longer clean. But what's really interesting is that when Jesus comes, who is like the cleanest person that has ever lived, he starts touching lepers and interacts with prostitutes and tax collector and, and the dead. And what ends up happening is that Jesus doesn't become contaminated, but he starts purifying and cleaning everything that he touches around him, including people's lives. You know, my, my daughters tend to spill food over all over their clothes all the time. And so we, we frequently use OxyClean to remove the stains. And what that OxyClean thing does is that it absorbs the stain so that the article of clothing will not be stain free. And similarly, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, that is what happens. He purifies us. He's the one that cleans us. And so this is one of the most um, the clearest examples of the gospel that I have personally ever heard. Imagine that there's a piece of paper and your name is at the very top. And underneath your name is a list of all, a long laundry list of all the bad things you've ever done. And so, you know how sometimes you condescendingly talk to your parents? That's on there. And not just the one time you do it, but every time you do it. You know how you get easily annoyed or irritated or lose your patience with your roommates because of the dishes or your spouse? Yep, that's also on there. You know how you, sometimes you gossip about people? That's on there. You know how sometimes you delight in other people's failure and misery because it makes you feel better about your own life? That's also on there. And every time you do it. Now, if there was such a list of all the wrong things you've done throughout your entire life, how long do you think this list would be? One page? 10 pages, 
maybe 100 pages, depending on the size of the font. How long do you think this list would be? Now I want you to imagine another piece of paper, but this time at the top of this list is Jesus's name and all the wrong things that he has ever done. The only difference is that this piece of paper is completely blank. There is no wrong thing Jesus has ever done because he lived a perfect life. But what happens on the cross is that he erases your name on your list and he writes his name at the top of it as if he had done all of these wrong things that you did. And he erases his name at the top of his list and he instead substitutes your name. So it's as if you lived a perfect life and he writes stain free at the top of the list. And that is what magically happens on the cross. There is an exchange that takes place of lives that are lived on our behalf so that it's as though we live the life of Jesus himself. And when you enter into a life with Jesus, that means that no matter what stainful things that you have done, what unclean things you have done, no matter how many times or you've made people lick the bottom of their shoes, no matter what dark regrets you might have about your past, they are all white clean through the blood of Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death uh, that was given to us in our place. And what makes the gospel such great news is that God is not just middle-class in mercy, but he is rich in mercy and wanting to show us mercy and grace if only we were to receive it. And I think this is why Christians above all people have the freedom to say, you know what? My life is a train wreck. I am a mess. I'm not as good as you think I am. Uh, in fact, I'm a lot worse. But because of the perfect resume of Jesus, I now have a new identity and I can now stand uh, on the shoulders of someone far greater than me. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, when a Christian truly sees themselves, they know there is nothing that anyone can say about them that is too, too bad. Instead, we're secure enough to say, you know what? I'm actually worse than what you just said. If you only knew the half of it, I am far worse than you think I even am. And yet we are declared righteous and clean because of what Jesus has done. And I think this is the, 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 you see the juxtaposition between Christianity and what our modern culture tells us to do, because in our modern culture, it's all about looking good without actually being good. And obviously social media perpetuates this sort of, and fosters this sort of culture, which is why it was so refreshing for me to read uh, an article from Todd Nehesi Coates recently. And for those of you who know, who know Coates, I mean, he's, he's one of our most thoughtful leaders and public thinkers in America. And, um, he's also very, a staunch atheist as well. And yet, even in the midst of his atheism, he has a very raw sense of his depravity and sin. And this is what he writes. I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that's not because I'm an especially good person or good or and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind but I'm also a dude who believes in guardrails. 
As a buddy of mine once put it, I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I am having a second drink and why I am not why I am going to a party and why I am not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I am not a good man, but I am prepared to be an honorable one. I love this quote because uh, I love how brutally honest Ta-Nehisi Coates is about himself because the truth of the matter is we all have a mongrel and unimaginably filthy mind. And so what he does is that he has guardrails in his life to protect him from his his nature, the, the nature that, that he has. And so I guess my question would be, but what happens when there are times when those guardrails don't work and they break down? What happens when you do go to happy hour? What happens when you do have that extra drink? What, what happens when you do go to that party that you probably shouldn't go to? Where is forgiveness to be found? Where is forgiveness to be found if it's not found from your spouse or your kids or your friends? And there is no forgiveness there. What, what are you supposed to do then? And, and typically what we do from a secular vantage point is that we, we engage in what the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Becker would say uh, is immortality projects. So we, we have this dark past that we've lived and we sort of want to justify our existence and atone for our mistakes. And so we try and fall in love. And maybe if we fall in love with someone that's a tier above us, better looking, more successful, then we feel like, yes, my life has value and worth. Or we have kids to leave a legacy, an immortal legacy. Or we engage in some kind of social cause or start the startup. And the only problem with that is that the older you get and the more you live life, you realize that when you do get married, uh, as great as marriage is, that other person cannot, cannot atone for your mistakes. They cannot, they cannot fill the void that you're looking for, which is why um, you know, when most people look to marriage to rescue them from that, what ends up happening is that their marriages actually fall apart more or you look into your kids to leave a, a lasting legacy and they give you joy and will cover up the dark past that you've done and lived and and then you have kids and you realize oh my gosh this is like incredibly exhausting i don't feel like i'm being saved i feel like i'm drowning or, or you engage in you know you start this startup and then it folds and or we're looking to a vaccine to save us only for there to be another pandemic later on. So my point is that we're constantly looking to these other things to, to sort of rescue us and save us, but they can't really rescue and save us the way that we really, really need. And when we do that with these things, here's what we're, we're doing to use a sports analogy. We're asking role players to function like superstars. And when you're asking a role player to do something that it can't really do, it's not gonna work. And similarly, when we're asking these good role players to function like superstar saviors to save us, it's not gonna, it's not gonna really work. These things are not trustworthy enough to rescue the weight of what our lives are really like. There is only one person that is trustworthy enough to save us, and that is God himself, which is why Paul again says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What makes something trustworthy? I would say that what makes something trustworthy is whether two things. Is it intellectually credible and is it existentially satisfying? Is it intellectually credible? If it's a fairy tale, then it's not really worth trusting because it's not true. And secondly, it has to be existentially satisfying because if it is true, but it doesn't really move or change my life, then, then what's the point of it, right? 
And I would say that Christianity is both intellectually credible and it's existentially satisfying. And I'm not going to go into great depth about both of these things. All this to say, if you attend our services enough and if you attend our community groups and get plugged into the life of the church, I think, I think what you will discover that Christianity is both. But here is what I will say, uh, and I'm borrowing this analogy from Tim Keller. If you were to get a, uh, a letter in the mail and the envelope look really professional, you open it up and, and the paper inside look very corporate and professional, and, and the letter said that you've acquired a large inheritance. Your initial thought would, might be, this is probably a scam and not real, but if it looked really professional and corporate enough and, and legit, you would at least look into it, right? And the, and the reason why you would do that is because the offer is so great. You know, if, if it was like two bucks, then you wouldn't, but if it's like a million bucks, you would, you would at least check it out, right? And similarly, what I would say with Christianity is, is that this offer is pretty great. It's not just more time on earth, it's, it's forgiveness of all of your sins, no matter what you've done, and eternal life. I mean, this offer is really, really great. And if the offer is great, I think it's worth at least checking out. So as we wrap up this year and what has been an existentially difficult year, uh, and as we begin a new year, I want to encourage you, especially if you're a seeker or skeptic in our community, to check this out, who the person of Jesus Christ is. And I think one of the things that you will discover is that uh, the bigger your understanding of your sin, the bigger you will see who Jesus is. But the smaller your understanding of sin, the smaller you will see uh, who Jesus is. Let me close with a final quote from uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And towards uh, Newton's last days on earth, he suffered from dementia. Uh, but as he suffered from dementia, this is one of the things that he wrote um, before he died. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Pray with me.